This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to another discussion on The Mosaic, where we explore current issues and trends through in-depth analysis, commentary, and discussion. From social justice to music and art, we're covering it all to highlight the unique experiences and opinions of our diverse community. Today, we'll hear about a community support group for people who use drugs, discuss Canada's opioid crisis, and hear what the group is doing for International Overdose Awareness Day. This isn't going to get better until we all come together. It's also the International Day of Protest Against Applied Behavior Analysis. The Autistic and Neurodivergent Liberation Front of Ottawa has more on ABA and a peaceful protest this afternoon. Even if you were to do ABA in such a way that there were no punishments, patient-driven priorities, non-problematic rewards, you know, a neurodiversity-affirming practitioner environment, even if you do everything right, you still have a treatment method that is woefully ineffective at teaching the skills that it claims to teach. And so it, it should come as no surprise that evidence is showing we're seeing increased PTSD symptoms in autistic people who've been through ABA. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we've got all that and more coming up on The Mosaic. Today is International Overdose Awareness Day. Solidarity groups around the world are addressing the far-reaching impacts of overdose. Many are remembering without stigma those who have died. The Solidarity Alliance of People Who Use Drugs is hosting their first candlelight vigil in Ottawa tonight. I spoke with the group's founder, Kayla Haggerty, whose advocacy began after losing her dad to an overdose in 2020. Here's our conversation from this morning. My name is Kayla. Um, I'm 24. I'm going to Carleton to do a master's degree in sociology, and I'm working under the supervision of Aaron Doyle right now. Um, And my thesis is focused on how the pandemic impacted the opiate epidemic. Part of that research was kind of inspired by my own personal loss. Uh, My dad passed away in May 2020 from an accidental opiate overdose. And so kind of since then, I've been focusing my research on that topic and utilizing my life experience to kind of make my research a little bit stronger, Uh, making the community-based research projects like podcasts, documentary. And I'm making a part two to that documentary right now for my thesis. And yeah, just like working with the communities that I've always been a part of and bringing them into like a more academic setting. Wow. So um, your advocacy began when you lost your dad to this crisis. And then since then, could you tell me a little bit more about the work that you've done focusing on addiction and mental health and overdose awareness issues? Yeah, for sure. With the group that I started called the Solidarity Alliance of People Who Use Drugs, we do like little outreach events. So we'll get people clothing, food, connect them with harm reduction resources. And then later on today, from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. at Dundonald Park, I'm hosting our first International Overdose Awareness Day event. And it's like a candlelight vigil. So I'm trying to get as many folks as I can to come out to kind of like light a candle for their loved one, kind of say maybe a few words for them. And then we all just like hang out, have coffee and donuts and Yeah, I'm trying to create a space of healing and grieving kind of through all of this. Are there many other organizations and events like this in the city that help to reduce the stigma of this conversation? Uh, A little bit. There's a couple of them. I know Sandy Hill also is hosting another International Overdose Awareness Day vigil at 1130 in the morning today. Organizations like Sandy Hill, Somerset West, those kinds of things, they do practice harm reduction principles. And then there's also just like grassroots organizations as well across Canada that are doing that. Indigenous Harm Reduction out in Toronto does really good work. I guess my organization, we're trying our best. We're still new. It just started in January 2023. So, and then CPEP too, uh, Criminalization and Punishment Education Project. They're always they're always out there trying to do things. So 
there's a couple organizations that talk about this stuff, but I feel like it does need to be talked about more. It's still kind of being pushed under the rug, especially the connection between like the increase in overdoses and COVID. I don't think a lot of people like to talk about that, but yeah. And then on that note of like the stigma and awareness and having this conversation, when you started your research to now, have you noticed a change? Like are more people talking about it? Yeah, for sure. When I first started in 2020, there were like barely any academic articles or like barely any conversations being had about this stuff. It was more like just the grassroots individuals or people with lived experience that were saying, hey, like something's wrong here. We need to start looking at this. Um, And now more articles are coming out, more articles are being published every day, the same talking about the same topic that I'm talking about in my thesis. And yeah, and I find that organizations now that went through the pandemic, like Sandy Hill, are now realizing the impacts of those drawbacks, I guess, during the pandemic on their service. And they're kind of like trying to pick up the pieces since then. So I think the conversations are being had. I just don't know if the solutions are being created. Mm. And then you you also mentioned that you've got firsthand experience with people who have, have lived these experiences combating with addiction and mental health issues. And what have what do they have to say about about services like this that you guys provide? Yeah, I feel like a lot of what people are telling me is that there's not enough I guess when you want to walk into something, you want to see yourself there and that'll make you more comfortable. And so the push right now is for people with more lived or living experience to be part of the roles. Like right now, my role is a harm reduction worker and you are not supposed to be actively using when you're a harm reduction worker and you need like a a college or university level education. Um, And a lot of people don't have that, but they do have the harm reduction education and experience from their own lived experience. And so they get kind of pushed to the side or not included in these opportunities and So a lot of the folks that I talk to are driven to push those narratives and kind of make space for people like them, which is kind of what I'm trying to do anyway, too. But yeah, Mm. it's just making sure that people with lived experience are included in like creating the policies and procedures, implementing the programming, giving the programming, things like that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. And then having this experience, hearing from them and doing this research, what have you found from how COVID has exacerbated this issue? There's a couple of things. I always split it into three just because it makes it easier. But the first thing is like the increase in mental health and addictions difficulties, especially during the isolation when we had like a stay at home orders and lockdown. The second thing is business shutdown. So a lot of people were like seeking, um, I guess, support and the treatment and the other options as well as safe injection sites and all of those things, their capacity was pulled back. And so less people were able to access those services. There were no public washrooms, like things like that, that really affected people. And then border closures as well. I think border closures had a lot to do with like the increase in drug precarity, like the toxicity of drugs right now. I think it was harder for people to get their products that they were used to in. There was a lot of like shortages, like there was a meth shortage. There was a couple things that like just people could not buy. And so they had to try something else. And yeah, and I think that increased like the overdose rate as well and just like tainted the drug supply even further. And, and what do we know about how toxic and lethal these drugs are? From my research, I'm just getting it from like Health Canada and like talking to people on the streets. And a lot of the drugs right now are laced with things like benzodiazepines and xylazine, which is like a veterinary tranquilizer that's not made for humans. And so when people do overdose, they could have a fentanyl overdose, yes or an opiate overdose and we can Narcan them but then they'll be fined from the opiates but the tranquilizers and the benzodiazepines will keep people asleep for like four to six hours 
and like we're unable to rouse them because like the sedation is so strong. That's been a big change. I'm not really sure if there's like any studies being done to see if there's like a reversal drug for xylazine or benzodiazepines and things like that. Things that make people like tranquilizers really. But right now that would be really needed because that's been a big change. Just like people don't know what drugs they're using anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of why the conversation around safe supply is so important because then people would know what they're taking and would know like the dosages and would know how much they need um, and they, they wouldn't have to yeah, use precarious or dangerous drugs on the streets. And I'm kind of running running close on time here, so I'm going to wrap it up shortly. But just yeah. lastly, if there was somebody out there who was listening, who was experiencing addiction or maybe they lost a loved one to an overdose, um, what would you have to say to them? Hmm. I think I would just say, like, kick in the doors that don't open for us. I think a lot of our problems are because we aren't included in the conversations that are being had about what we need and what our families and loved ones need. And so, like, making sure that you you put yourself there or at least build a community where you guys can communicate and come up with solutions amongst yourselves just because this isn't going to get better until we all come together. It can't just be the loved ones of people who have lost drugs that, that have empathy and consideration. We need like everyone, people who haven't had ex have experienced this kind of grief too as well to include people and mm -hmm. give people what they want. Yeah. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add for the vigil tonight? Like what that might look like? If folks want to come out, it's Dundonald Park. It's uh, 516 Somerset West right across the street from Art House and that Tim Hortons on Somerset. So you should like, yeah, come join us. Come cry with me. <laughs> Whatever works with everyone. That's about it though. Okay. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you for speaking with me. That was my conversation with Kayla Haggerty, founder of the Solidarity Alliance of People Who Use Drugs. Applied Behavior Analysis, or ABA, is one of the main treatments for people diagnosed with autism. The controversial treatment has been around since the 60s. It's criticized for punishing autistic people for harmless behaviors and leaving lasting impacts like PTSD. Today, groups around the world are protesting ABA, including the Autistic and Neurodivergent Liberation Front of Ottawa. So I actually co-founded the Autistic and Neurodivergent Liberation Front of Ottawa uh, and currently serve as chair of the organization. That's Harmon Pope. In 2022, Pope sent out messages to autistic people he knew. He was asking them to collaborate in a counter-protest against Autism Speaks, a group known to be governed by non-autistic people. Unfortunately, the scarce representation is quite common, according to Pope, who founded the ANLFO out of his passion for advocacy. Uh, so seeing that there wasn't an organization doing that work locally, I felt a real duty to step up and put it together myself. Today, the group is taking a stance against ABA. Here's what Pope says about the treatment. So ABA stands for Applied Behavior Analysis. It is the most commonly used treatment for autistic people in Ontario. Uh, in fact, it was also the only treatment that received any funding from the province until 2019. At the same time, however, ABA has been widely opposed by actual autistic people for a number of reasons. ABA utilizes incentives and aversives, so rewards and punishments, to achieve uh, whatever the desired behavior outcome is. These desired outcomes are typically decided not by the patients themselves, but rather by the whims of the behavior analyst or the child's parents. These punishments can often entail timeouts or withholding items that the patient sees as valuable, such as a comfort object. Uh, in extreme cases, such as that of the Judge Rottenberg Center, 
electric shocks. Rewards can similarly cause problems, albeit less electrifying. Uh, food is a common reward I hear about, typically snacks like crackers or M&Ms. Uh, developing a relationship between rewards and food could lead to eating disorders. Uh, it's also worth noting that many behavior analysts have historically seen harmless cultural differences, such as stimming. Uh, stimming being a sensory and emotional regulation technique where someone engages in soothing, repetitive behaviors, or another example, eye contact avoidance to they see these, what I would argue is harmless cultural differences as behaviors to correct. A frequent story he hears is that as soon as someone's given a diagnosis, the parent in the room is told and often pressured towards ABA. Not presenting it as one of many options, but rather as a clear-cut answer. Whether that's because of the exclusive funding ABA had, regional availability of service providers, or other reasons, often I'm told they'll tell these parents that without ABA, their kids will never be able to speak, never be able to drive a car, or exercise their autonomy in various capacities. I know this, because it's happened to my mother. Um, she thankfully made the choice to avoid ABA on a hunch, and that hunch paid off. But she was told that if I didn't go through ABA, that I would never have a thriving social life or live independently. And yet here I am at 23, living on my own in my bachelor apartment with a number of friends that I can count on. If I were to have experienced ABA, would I be here today in a similar position? I'm never going to know the answer to that question. I think a lot of parents who put their kids in ABA anecdotally attribute successes to ABA that in actuality might just be their child's natural development. Pope notes that there are in fact many kids that do need some kind of support. He points to alternatives like occupational therapy and language therapy, with alternative treatments varying from person to person. What I will say is that I haven't seen nearly the same level of criticism from the autistic community towards alternatives as I have towards ABA. While the punishments of ABA have become less physically severe than they were in the 60s, these changes haven't addressed the fundamental issues of why ABA doesn't work, according to Pope. How ABA works does not line up with what we know about the science of motivation. Studies on workplace incentives have generally shown that while you can create a short-term boost in productivity, the second you eliminate the reward structure, the productivity returns to normal, or in some cases it's worse than before, because you've made them reliant on an extrinsic motivator. And personally, I think the last thing we should be doing to children who struggle to communicate or communicate differently is to provide them with a structure which punishes intrinsic motivation in favor of blindly following peers and authority figures. So, you know, there's a reason one of the cartoon signs on the event's poster says non-compliance is a social skill, right? Like, even if you were to do ABA in such a way that there were no punishments, patient-driven priorities, non-problematic rewards, you know, a neurodiversity-affirming practitioner environment, even if you do everything right, you still have a treatment method that is woefully ineffective at teaching the skills that it claims to teach. And so it, it should come as no surprise that evidence is showing we're seeing increased PTSD symptoms in autistic people who've been through ABA. This afternoon, they're protesting the treatment in Canada and calling for a nationwide change. We want to call upon Ottawa City Council to really take action on this. And I know a lot of folks might think, well, isn't this provincial, isn't this federal? There is aspects of this that the municipal government can tackle. One aspect I've thought of expanding upon is taking a lesson from folks who've been trying to do things against conversion therapy for queer people like myself. Before queer conversion therapy was banned federally, the city of Vancouver wanted to do something around queer conversion therapy. And so one thing they did was they prohibited business licenses for folks offering queer conversion therapy. And while with queer conversion 
conversion therapy, that was mostly church groups, uh, people that were not doing this with a profit incentive. ABA absolutely is happening with profit incentive. So that is one way we can tackle this is prohibiting businesses from providing applied behavior analysis to minors with city limits. Another thing we've asked is for the mayor and members of city council to stop associating with associations that will defend the use of ABA, whether that be groups like Autism Speaks or Autism Ontario or any of these charities that frankly aren't really governed by the community and more often than not are just governed by these very same service providers, often behavior analysts themselves or corporate executives. The ANLFO is working to address these inequalities. They do so by hosting public-facing protests and social events. That kind of community work is just as important as these protests. Our community is so often isolated from one another. So giving an affirming space where folks can make those meaningful connections and build a sense of cultural identity is just as radical. I'll also note this organization isn't just for autistic folks. We welcome anyone who identifies as neurodivergent, whether they be ADHD, dyslexic, dyspraxic, intellectually or developmentally disabled, bipolar, depressed, anxious, just to name a few. Just because autistic folks have been fighting this fight for the longest time doesn't mean we can't apply these ideas to other groups and try and lift each other up. That was Harmon Pope, co-founder of the Autistic and Neurodivergent Liberation Front of Ottawa. The group is hosting a peaceful protest at 6 p.m. at the Human Rights Monument. And that's it for our discussion on The Mosaic. Thanks for tuning in. You can find this episode and previous ones on chuo.fm. I'm Lauren Ralston, and we'll see you next week on CHUO 89.1 FM, your community radio station.